0: I don't know of anything we need more and have less of in the Church today than discernment. There are five references to discernment in the New Testament. We have thought about discerning the truth, discerning the times, discerning the spirits, and discerning the Lord's body. And tonight we come to the last, discerning good and evil. And uh, that takes us to Hebrews, the fifth chapter, where the writer is talking about church babies, babes. For we read in the twelfth verse of that fifth chapter, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And there become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now you know Paul had the same trouble with the folks at Corinth, babes church babies, not the ones in the nursery, but the 150 and 200 pound crowd keep the preacher busy running around with the milk bottle, and they ought to have been on meat a long time ago. You have them in your church, if you don't, it's the first one I ever heard of that didn't have a generous supply, and they're fussy, and they're the ones that cause most trouble. When a new preacher comes, they say I don't like him, he changed my formula. I've often thought that if we uh, classified some of our members according to their spiritual growth, a lot of 40-year-olds would still be in the beginner's department. Now Christians grow just like boys grow by food, rest, and exercise, three very simple things. If you don't feed a boy, he won't grow. If he doesn't rest, he wouldn't grow. And if he doesn't exercise, he won't grow, and neither will a Christian. Unless he feeds on the word and rests in the Lord and exercises himself unto godliness. Exercise in verse 14 is a very important word here. Have exercised their senses. Their perceptions are trained, one translation puts it, by long use to discriminate, that's another word for discern, in a way, between good and evil. Now, this doesn't mean that you try everything, good and bad, and out of all that make up your mind, which is which. That's the position of some young people and some older people today. If you object to a filthy show or a vile book, the anvil chorus comes back. Have you seen the show? Have you read the book? Well, I don't have to drink liquor to decide whether it's right or wrong. All I have to do is look at the crowd that does drink it. I don't have to be an adulterer to make up my mind about immorality. This pernicious and silly nonsense is the chatter of the undiscriminating who have not exercised their senses to discern good and evil. How do you do it? By using our faculties as directed by the Holy Spirit and by prayer and by the word and by sanctified common sense to make decisions as to what's right and what's wrong. Most of our church membership today is untrained and undisciplined, a mixed multitude, no knowledge of the Bible, no clear conviction on creed or conduct. The old clear-cut lines today are fuzzy. The Vietnam War illustrated that. There was a time when you went to war and the enemy was out in front, and you knew who to shoot at, but in this one you didn't know where the enemy was back of you, around you, under you, over you, anywhere. And we've been infiltrated so in the church today that you don't know what to aim at and you don't know where the enemy is. The lines have been erased, we even talk about unisex today, that's why we have so many girl boys and boy girls running around. Black and white have been smudged into indefinite gray, everything's relative, nothing's absolute, there's no king in Israel. and. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. What's right for me may be wrong for you. And we have an indiscriminate uh, amiability that tries to say something good about everything. Has a nice word for the devil himself. Any man with definite judgments about anything is too angular today to fit the neat, smooth little patterns of these times. I heard of a woman who said to her, Senator, I sure do like your straightforward way of dodging the issue. (laughs) Now, some have developed that remarkably. And that's why preaching has become so tasteless, nothing to bite into and nothing to chew on like boneless chicken stewed in cream. I believe in being dogmatic. When I go to a doctor, I want a dogmatic doctor. I don't want him to say it could be this and could be that. We'll give you these pills. If they don't kill you, we'll try something else. I want a dogmatic doctor. And I get on a plane, I want a dogmatic pilot. I don't want that to be the day when he says we're gonna try something new today. And don't you hate going to church when you come away feeling like you've been out to dinner where they didn't serve anything but cool whip? (laughs) One half of what he says cancels the other half of what he says, and he ends up having said nothing. President Eisenhower had one member in the Congress. In the Senate, in the, uh, of his own advisors really, Charlie Wilson, who'd been with General Motors, and Charlie Wilson wasn't a politician, didn't know any better than just say what he thought. He didn't realize that that didn't work in Washington necessarily. And one day he said, uh, next time I have a secretary, I want a one-armed man. And they asked him why. He said, well, I'm so tired of these folks that are always saying, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. (laughs) The most popular shelf in the ecclesiastical supermarket today is canned goods in the baby food department. Strong meat's not popular. It belongs to the full-grown and the discerning. Now, Hebrews 5, 12 to 14 pays tribute, beloved, to maturity and to experience, and these don't count for much today. Age and experience have surrendered to youth and inexperience in what that remarkable book talks about, the one titled Teenage Tyranny. I hope you've read it. Rehoboam, you remember, listened to the counsel of uh, the Comparatively Young, although they weren't teenagers and declined the council of the older people, and split the kingdom. And this capitulation in the home today has brought about a strange situation. There's as much authority in the home as ever, the only difference is the young people use it. The parents have not been bringing up the young folks, the young folks been bringing down the parents. We have 25 million young voters today, one fifth of the total practically, and if they had the wrong leader, disaster might result. You say, oh, I know, but only 2% of that crowd has gone haywire. Well, that's about the percentage that went haywire in the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution and with Castro. Hitler took the youth of Germany and almost ruined the world what could happen if our Lord could capture the youth of this land. I get amused sometimes at the emphasis on youth today. You'd think young people had just been invented. (laughs) Why, we've had them ever since I can remember. (laughs) And sometimes in church a tail wags the dog, and the young people's program is just about it. At this rate, I think our deacons and elders will be picked from the junior department a little later on. Now, I thank God for youth. Somebody said youth has fire without light and age has light without fire, and we need both. And somebody said if youth only knew how to live and old age could, and that's a problem. We need young people in the church to keep it from going too slow old folks, to keep it from going too fast. But there are some things, whether you like it or not, that require time and experience. Now, if you're growing oaks, that's one thing. If you're raising mushrooms, that's something else. There are other things besides coffee that have to percolate. And sometimes we try to tear open the cocoon and get the butterfly out too soon what with dating and dancing at 10 years of age. I watched a group of pre-teenagers the other day on TV actually discussing Vietnam and ecology. They should have been playing hopscotch out in the backyard. It's a crime to rob youngsters of childhood. Bad enough to be an adult when you have to be. This discernment of good and evil belongs to adults who have trained and used their taste, this is another translation, to know the difference between good and evil. Now obviously that takes time, whether you like it or not, it just takes time. Youth has a great place in the church, but the scriptures warn us against novices, whether young or old, 1 Timothy 3.6. And I remember a long, long time ago when I was preaching in Bern, Indiana, in that Mennonite town, wonderful town. Wonderful church. Staying with an old country doctor, and he had a sign in his office that read, "It's what you learn after you know it all that counts." That gentle irony did me a lot of good. So we have to watch novices, lest being filled with pride they fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now this doesn't mean that wisdom is the exclusive property of older people because my Bible says great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Rehoboam's older men actually just advised him from the standpoint of political expediency. My Bible says, let him not boast that putteth on his harness as he that putteth it off. And we need uh, uh, young Timothys, and we must not despise their youth. But today, if a preacher is not pretty well fixed by the time he's 45, he's practically superannuated, so far as any church wanting him after that. Somebody said they're like the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son, who grumbled, if they can't get a young preacher, (laughs) thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. That's a strange way to apply that verse, but I think there's some truth in it. Never have maturity and experience been so discounted. And if you rise up today and say something positive about anything, they'll say that you're not tolerant and that we must grow mellow as we grow older. Well, we all. but the trouble about this mellow business is some things get mellow just before they spoil What we do need is more Christians, young and old, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. I don't know who said it, but it was well said. We are suffering today from an epidemic of amateurism. Novices are blown up into celebrities overnight by mass media. We make giants out of pygmies to their own undoing and to our embarrassment sometimes. While men of experience and maturity are sometimes ignored and the church worships the great God entertainment. Ecclesiastes 10.7 speaks of servants on horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. I've seen some of both. I've seen uh, equestrian servants and pedestrian princes. We need a family revival today like Jacob started when they took off for Bethel again. You remember he'd met God at Bethel and then the businessman got the upper hand and he came down to Shechem and got rich and the family got ruined and his daughter Dinah made her debut and got into society and got into trouble and finally God said, now go back up to Bethel. So he collected the family and being the head of the family, thanked the Lord. He didn't ask them, do you want to go to Bethel? He didn't say, we'll take a vote on it. He said, we're going. And they did. And uh, he didn't ask uh, the rest of them what. He didn't ask Junior. He wasn't afraid he'd frustrate Junior. He said, we're going. Rebecca apparently did not belong to women's lib. So he said, we're going. They set a good pattern. And over in Joel, and most people don't know anything in the book of Joel except what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, but Joel was a revivalist, and he called for a family revival. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Now that wasn't a youth revival. That was a family revival. Everybody got in on it, and if you go further on in that chapter, you find out that if all ages repent, all ages will rejoice because young men, the old men, will dream dreams and see visions. All ages will be blessed. So it's it's a family affair, really. We're sadly in need of spiritual discernment of good and evil that comes from the training of our faculties toward maturity and experience. I know what you're saying. You say, well, I ascribe your remarks to senility and... Uh, you probably want to write me off as an old man, but uh, and I am, but uh, uh, after all, I still have at three score and twelve more preaching than I can do, and there must be somebody that needs it and wants it or that God wants it to hear it, and I get a better response from young people than I've ever had in my life. And that speaks well for me or them or somebody. There's one advantage I've got on you young folks. I've been young and I've been old and you've never been old. (laughs) See, I've been 16, I've been 60 and you've not been 60. And I've been 17, I've been 70 and you've not been 70. So there's some things you'll just have to wait until you find out. And there's a greater demand for this emphasis than some amateurs think. And I'd like to advise the avant-garde crowd that's always saying, let's get with it. Get with what? And then we have these poor little fellows that are like Ephraim, who was a cake, not turned. Oh, I love the homely. Similes of our bodies. These young Ephraim's trying to be hard hardball when they're just half-baked. You can't beat the Bible when it comes to describing us. We must grow up to maturity where children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine but the sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, grow up. Into him and all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. Make a red ring around that and grow up. There's nothing more rare than discernment. The natural man doesn't know anything about it. The carnal man is devoid of it, and only the spiritual man has it. It's time to get out of the nursery and grow up. Now, we've talked all week about discernment, and some of you may be saying, but how? How do you get it? Well, it's the wisdom of God. Let me just, in closing, leave a few guidelines. Ask God for wisdom, James 1.5. I've said here already, if you want knowledge, go to school. If you want wisdom, get on your knees. Now, uh, wisdom is sanctified knowledge. I know that. You have to have knowledge to use wisdom. But uh, wisdom comes down from above the divine kind. Ask in faith, nothing wavering, because if you do, you'll be like a wave of the sea driven at the wind and tossed, a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ask for it. And then 1 John 4, verses 2 3, here are guidelines. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Here's how you distinguish. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. There's how you distinguish. And then there's the other verse, there is really a sixth verse in the New Testament about discernment, but it applies to all the others in general, and that's why I bring it in now, and of course you you know the one I mean, about the Word of God that is quick, living, powerful, energetic, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner. Now, that's the Bible, is a discerner. Quick to discern, skilled in judging like an expert, surgeon with a sharp knife, all the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think with that much discernment available at any time, we ought to be able to discern the truth, and discern the times, and discern the spirit, and discern the Lord's body, and discern good and evil. Any man with the Holy Spirit in him and a Bible in front of him praying in faith for wisdom has no business shaking his head, saying, I don't know what to think about this, and I don't know how to assess that. We're the children of the day and not the children of darkness. But my favorite of all of them is in John 10. Five things my Lord says here. My sheep hear my voice, verse 27. I know them, verse 27. They follow me, verse 27. They know my voice, verse 4, and they know not the voice of strangers. That's discernment. They know my voice. They don't know these strange voices. Those of you who have been in Israel, you have watched along those roads, the sheep and the shepherd. And sometimes one shepherd for a while looks over several flocks of sheep. But one is his own flock, and he has a whistle that they recognize and the others don't the Christian knows the voice of his Lord if he's walked close to him. And the best antidote to the counterfeit is a double dose of the genuine. The best way to identify counterfeit money is not by making a study of counterfeit money. You spend all your time studying counterfeit money, you never get to the end of that road. But learn real money so well. And that's the way they do it. Be so well acquainted with real money that you can spot the phony the minute you see it. If we knew the Lord better, we wouldn't be having so much trouble with this false doctrine and that. I I never have been much interested in these books on false doctrines. They have their place, but they sort of wear me down. There's no end to it to begin with, and you can spend so much time studying all these false doctrines that I think you might use getting better acquainted with Jesus Christ. When you do, you can spot the false, the fake, the counterfeit. When the sheep know the shepherd's voice, they're not deceived by the voice of strangers. When you know the bright morning star, you won't be fooled by Jesus Christ's superstar. You will see the phony immediately, in spite of all these folks that are trying to find something good about the superstar business. Just get better acquainted with him. You hear the phrase every little bit on radio and TV, we pause for station identification. I don't know of anything we need today to do more than to pause more than we do for station identification. We're living in a bewildering bedlam. Our eardrums are battered by a thousand voices, some from God and some from the devil, some from heaven and some from hell. And if we're to keep our sanity, we must pause. We must take time out for station identification. Some dear people don't know what they're listening to, nor to whom they're listening. And so take time out, friends. And get still and check your guidelines and read your Bible and listen to the shepherd's voice. And you'll identify the station. Some time ago, a fellow was uh, in a telephone booth trying to find the number, and he had the door cracked half open, and it was getting dark, and... He was hunting for dear life and couldn't find what he was looking for. And a friend stepped up to him and tapped him and said, The light comes on when you shut the door. Well, I think I read something about that over in my Bible, don't you? But thou, the people of prayer, When thou prayest, the period of prayer, Enter into thy closet, the place of prayer, And when thou hast shut thy door, the privacy of prayer. Pray to thy Father which is in secret, the privilege of prayer. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly, the promise of prayer. It's a great art today to learn how to shut the door. Paul says, forgetting what's behind. If you're going through life with all these back doors open, worrying about the past, never accepting the forgiveness of God, if you are going to live that way, may the Lord have mercy on you. I believe it was Borum, the Australian writer, who told about Mr. Lloyd George, England's prime minister, who always had a habit. They were playing cricket over there, and they came through a pasture gate, and they were going on, and Mr. Lloyd George turned around, went back, closed the gate. He didn't have to, but he said, I've always made it a practice in my life to close all gates behind me. When I had a country church, I had a dear man in the church whose wife committed suicide. It nearly killed him. They had to watch him for a while because he was almost beside himself. I came to the church after he had recovered partly from it. We sat there one day, talking about insomnia. then We got off on that subject somehow. He said, I've made it a practice in the last year or two. When I go in my room to go to sleep, I close the door. I knew what he meant. Not just the door to his room. He had to learn to close the door on tragedy, to close the door on the things that had driven him nearly crazy and that he couldn't do anything about now. Friend, after you've had the forgiveness of God and are right with him, do learn how to close the door. And when thou hast shut thy door, the light will come on. Spend more time learning the secret of the closed door. Our Father, here are dear people tonight who have a lot of things in the past that could keep us from going ahead into the future. And oh Lord, we're living in such a pandemonium. How blessed have been these precious days at this favored spot in this wonderful Saturday afternoon. Thank God for Ben Lippin and what it's meant to me this past week. I never needed it more. And oh Lord, teach us in these frantic, feverish times to get so well acquainted with Jesus that we won't be distracted by all these voices yelling in our ears these days. Grant us that wisdom which cometh down from above that we may discern these precious things, we may know the truth, and we may know what time it is, that we may distinguish the spirits and discern the Lord's body in good and evil. We can't do it, Lord, alone. We don't have what it takes, but we cast ourselves upon Thine infinite resources. Bless this truth to our hearts tonight and henceforth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.